Although we often feel as if we are without hope in our suffering, Scripture reminds us of God's character and His promises. We can trust His sovereign care, His goodness, and His wisdom even in the darkest seasons of life. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find today's sermon plus thousands of more free resources over at our website, Radical.net. In today's sermon from Genesis chapters 37 through 50, Pastor David uses the life of Joseph to show us that God is not only with us in our sin and suffering, but also that he uses it for our good and His glory. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, Our Suffering and God's Sovereignty, The Life of Joseph, from Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Today, we are now one month into reading through the story of Scripture together. If you've already fallen behind, don't worry, it's totally fine. You just jump back in this week. Today, we're actually going to dive into a story that we're in the middle of in our Bible reading, the story of Joseph And I am so looking forward to walking through this story because it is so applicable to our lives. Let me ask you a question. Has your life ever not gone as you planned? (laughs) Let me ask you another question. Have you ever been hurt, even deeply, by someone else? And here's one more question. Ever found yourself in a situation where you have wondered, why is this happening? Or even, where is God in the middle of this? A few weeks ago, we looked at what the book of Job in the Bible teaches about our suffering and God's sovereignty. As I was walking through our Bible reading plan this week, I couldn't help but think that a part two on our suffering and God's sovereignty might be really helpful to Consider with a particular focus that's different from Job on suffering the sovereignty of God and sin and the hurt sin causes, which is what the story of Joseph is all about. So I want to walk you through this story that spans from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. And I want you to see who God is and how God works in a world of sin and hurt in a way that I pray will give you, right where you are sitting right now, a rock-solid foundation to stand on when you hurt in different ways. And especially for those of you who would not say you're a follower of Jesus right now, maybe you're visiting with a friend or a family member or on your own, I want you to know I am glad you're here. You are always welcome here. And I know that for some non-Christians, I think about non-Christian friends of mine, one of the primary reasons they have yet to believe in Jesus or in God is because of all the evil and suffering in the world. Struggle to comprehend a God who can be good and still allow evil like we see around us. And I want to show you today what the Bible teaches about this. And my prayer is that you might see God's greatness and goodness in a world of evil for the first time, not just generally in the world, but personally in your life. So let's start by reading the Bible's introduction to Joseph in Genesis 37, verse 1, and then I'll help tell the rest of the story from there. 
Genesis 37, verse one, the Bible says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, But when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. All right, let's pause there. And what I've done in your notes that hopefully you received when you came in on the back of that bulletin is I've tried to provide a a quick overview of the story of Joseph and specifically the suffering of Joseph starting in what we just read. So follow along. I encourage you to take notes there. We're initially introduced to Joseph as the favorite son. From the first day he was born, Joseph was the golden child in his family. We've read in our Bible reading about Jacob's love for his wife, Rachel, who was barren for many years, but finally she gave birth to a son. They named him Joseph. And verse three here in chapter 37 says that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And he showed it to him by giving him a multicolored robe, a picture of this close relationship he had with his dad. Now, as a result of being the favorite son, he was also the despised brother. A little tattletale. Running to mom and dad with all the things his brothers do wrong, and Joseph's brothers hated him for it. Of course, it didn't help things when Joseph would come down to the breakfast table in the morning and say, guess what I dreamed about last night? All of you guys were bowing down at my feet past the eggs. So one day, this is where I'm going to fill in some of the gaps because I don't have time to read every passage in this story, but one day, the brothers were, (coughs) excuse me, together out in the field and they saw Joseph coming their way, wearing his nice coat and they came up with a plan. The initial idea was to kill him. They hated him. But then Reuben persuaded them with a different plan. Reuben said, let's throw Joseph into a pit and leave him to die. And Reuben was thinking to himself that he would come back later and rescue Joseph. But interestingly, it wasn't Reuben's plan that came to fruition. Instead, it was a plan that Judah proposed. And this is important. I want you to notice all throughout the story how Judah plays an important role. So when a caravan of Ishmaelites comes down the road, Judah proposes that they sell Joseph off as a slave to them. These Ishmaelites, also called Midianites in the story, pay 20 shekels for the despised and now robeless brother. The brothers take the robe back to their father, dipped in blood, and make up a story about how an animal had devoured Joseph. And Jacob mourns, in a sense for the next 22 years, mourns, thinking that Joseph is dead. Little does Jacob know, though, that Judah's decision has spared Joseph's life. 
That leads to Genesis 39. Turn over there with me where we see Joseph as the slave in a foreign land. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, buys Joseph from the Ishmaelites to be his slave in Egypt. Pick up what happens there in Genesis 39, verse 2. The Bible says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. You see what's happening here? The promise God had made all throughout what we've read in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that through their offspring, the blessing of God would come to the nations. It's happening here Albeit in the unlikeliest of circumstances, Joseph as a slave in Egypt. Now, as if things were not difficult enough working as a slave in a foreign land, one day Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph. She'd made various passes at him, and he had resisted all of them, which is a helpful side note. Like, God help every single man and woman here today at other campuses to flee every type of sexual sin. So much we talked about last week, whether it's looking at an image on the internet, flirting with somebody at work, anything. God raise up men and women who will, like Joseph, run from temptation. Which leads to this next picture of Joseph, the pure servant. A total contrast, actually, with Judah in Genesis 38 before this. And really, in all these stories we're reading in Genesis, we see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob willing to compromise their integrity at certain points, giving their wives to foreign rulers. Now, when Joseph is sought by the wife of a foreign ruler, he resists and he runs like, oh, that may be the word God has brought many of you today to hear, run. I'm guessing there are some, maybe many, dabbling in sexual sin or temptation in this way or that way at this point. God in his grace is saying to you and me, us and his word right now together, run, run. Don't rationalize, run. The problem for Joseph is that when he runs, his coat is left behind. And as a result, he's framed by Potiphar's wife. Subsequently, he becomes the slandered prisoner. Through no fault of his own, Joseph was righteous, pure, and holy. And yet he's imprisoned for 13 years in a dungeon. There, slandered and imprisoned, Joseph rises to leadership. And after many years go by, one day the king's cupbearer and baker make a batch, a bad batch of food and drink, and the king sends them to jail, where one night they can't sleep. And they both have dreams that leave them pretty confused the next morning. Joseph just so happens to walk by them that morning, sees them confused, and asks them what's wrong. They tell him about their dreams, and Joseph ends up interpreting them. One of them, Joseph says, the cupbearer will live. The other, the baker, will die. And Joseph says to the cupbearer, who's going to live, hey, when you get out, don't forget about me. Tell Pharaoh about me so I can get out of this prison. And what Joseph said ends up happening. Indeed, the cupbearer lives, but... The cupbearer forgets Joseph. That is, until two years later, Pharaoh doesn't sleep well one night, and he has a dream. 
No one in Egypt can interpret that dream. So while Pharaoh is sharing it with all of his magicians, it just so happens that the cupbearer overhears what's going on. And the cupbearer tells Pharaoh, I know just the guy to help you. And before you know it, Joseph is brought into Pharaoh's presence. Once there, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream, a dream that foretells seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt to be followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, you better start storing up a reserve right now. Pharaoh is overwhelmed by the spirit of God in Joseph and says, you need to be over my house and over all the people in Egypt in order to lead us through this. So check out chapter 41, verse 42. See a total transformation here. Joseph goes from being a slave imprisoned in a dungeon to, watch this, chapter 41, verse 42, says, then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. The favorite son, despised brother and slave in a foreign land becomes the leader over all the land. Joseph basically becomes the prime minister in Egypt with authority over all the people of Egypt. And not just in Egypt, but because of the impending famine and the preparations made under Joseph's leadership, many peoples and nations would come to Egypt and specifically to Joseph to beg for food. So thus the stage is set in chapter 42 for Jacob to say, look at verse one. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt amidst this famine, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? He said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And if you've been reading, you know what happens next. In a winding plot, Jacob's sons are unknowingly brought before Joseph, their brother. But they don't recognize this brother they sold into slavery. And yet they are bowing down, begging for food. And through a series of circumstances leading up to Genesis 45, Joseph becomes the restorative brother. That's where we left off in our reading this last week. And there's so much in these chapters, so many questions even about why Joseph is doing things this way or that way. But I want you to notice one thing in particular in the story. And that, again, is Judah's prominent role. When you step back and look at it, you realize these chapters actually revolve around an interplay between Joseph and Judah. In their first journey to see Joseph, Joseph requests the brothers go home and bring Benjamin back with them. So after they go back in Genesis chapter 43, they're contemplating whether or not to make that second trip, this time with Benjamin. Jacob is trying to decide whether or not he sends off his sons, and it's Judah who steps up and says, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. We must go. Chapter 43, verse 9, Judah basically offers himself as a pledge, a guarantee that Benjamin will be safe. Then the next chapter, chapter 44, says that Judah and his brothers appeared before Joseph. And Judah is the one who speaks before Joseph. And Judah is the one who offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin when Joseph says, Benjamin must stay in Egypt. All that leads to chapter 45, where Joseph finally reveals his identity to his brothers. And he says, go Get our father Jacob and bring him and all your families here so you can be provided for. And in chapter 46, verse 28, Jacob sends Judah to lead the caravan into Egypt. Now through this interplay between Joseph and Judah, the restoration happens in the family. And ultimately the last picture of Joseph 
comes to the surface. Joseph becomes the reunited son. Chapter 46, verse 28, gives us this picture. Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. That's another term for Egypt. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, Jacob, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel, in other words, Jacob said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know you are still alive. It leads to chapter 47 where Jacob and all his sons settle in Egypt while Joseph rules. In chapter 48, Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons. In chapter 49, he blesses all of his sons, including both Judah and Joseph. And then Jacob dies, leading Joseph in chapter 50 of Genesis to fall on his face weeping as the reunited son. And that is the story of Joseph. Now that leads me to pause for just a minute before we go on and think. Think about how this story relates to our lives. Like the favorite son and despised brother. Have you ever been a part of family conflict? Like maybe even this morning? (laughs) Or maybe growing up, you were the favorite. Maybe you were not the favorite. Maybe you had a close relationship with your siblings. Maybe you have had conflict with your siblings. The slave in a foreign land, have you ever found yourself in a place of hurt and pain, maybe even at the hands of people you leaned on to love you? A pure servant becomes a slandered prisoner. Have you ever taken a stand for purity only to be penalized for it? Have you ever been wrongly accused of something? Have you ever been slandered by someone? The leader over all the land, the restored brother, the united, reunited son. Have you ever longed for peace and restoration and resolution in your life or your family or your relationships? Like there are so many places we, I think, can all identify with in this story. And all these pictures in Joseph's life come together to set the stage for the story's punchline and maybe the greatest punchline in all the Old Testament. It's our memory verse this week, even though we haven't read this chapter yet. So let's say it out loud together. I'll put it on the screen, but don't look at the screen if you've memorized it. So let's say Genesis 50, verse 20, all together. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Wow. This is where I want us to see the sovereignty of God in the suffering of Joseph. The story of Joseph, and not just in his story, in our stories. In a world of sin and hurt and things not going like we planned, what does it mean for God to be sovereign, and why is this so significant for our lives? Four truths. Number one, in a world of sin and suffering, for God to be sovereign means that you are never alone. Oh, please hear this across this room and other campuses right now. In a world of sin and suffering, you are never alone. 
Go, go back to Genesis 39 with me. Remember Joseph in Potiphar's house and the story with Potiphar's wife? Well, we talk about how when the Bible repeats something, we should sit up and take notice. Well, let me show you a phrase that is repeated four times in this one chapter. You might circle it or underline it or highlight it in your Bible some way. The phrase that we're looking for is the Lord was with Joseph. So right after Joseph was sold as a slave to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, listen to what the Bible tells us. Chapter 39, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. There it is the first time right there at the beginning of verse two. And he became a successful man. And he's in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that second time the Lord was with him. The Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So two times we hear that as Joseph found himself a slave in Egypt, separated from his family and all that was familiar to him, the Lord was with him. And then look how the chapter ends. After Joseph flees temptation, gets slandered, he's being thrown into prison. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 20. Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Two times in the beginning of the chapter, like bookends, two times in the end of the chapter, the Bible intentionally shows us that in the deepest, darkest moments of Joseph's life, the Lord was with him. And because God was with him, Joseph was able to stand and even rise in the midst of difficulties because he was not alone. Do not miss this. In all that Joseph went through, he was never alone. And the Bible is showing us here a truth that does not just apply to Joseph. This is a truth that applies to all who trust in God. The same God whose presence was with Joseph in that pit from which he was sold and the house in which he served and the prison in which he was thrown before the Pharaoh to whom he was summoned, that same God is with you. Hear what the Bible is saying to you today. God is with you in your highs and God is with you in your lows. When things are going great, the God of the universe is with you. And when things are at their worst, when nothing is going right, when things are not working out like you planned, God, the God of the universe is with you. And in those dark, hard, hurtful moments when you feel like you are alone, when you feel like no one else is understanding or no one else knows, God himself is with you. He knows and understands. You are never alone. Second truth, flowing from that, in a world of sin and suffering, things are never out of control. You know, it's interesting, nowhere in Joseph's story do we find like breathtaking displays of supernatural power. Instead, what we have are subtle details that point us to the invisible hand of God who is overseeing every single thing that's happening, even the worst things that are happening. Think about it. Who's in control here? Joseph is sold into slavery, unjustly thrown into prison. So does that mean evil or sin are in control? 
Well, look at chapter 45. You've got to see this. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, what do we expect Joseph to do? Like, let him have it, right? Get down and prepare for your punishment. That's not what he does. Look at chapter 45. Listen to verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not Terry, do you hear this? Verse five, God sent me here. God did this. Verse seven, God sent me before you. Verse eight, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Verse nine, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. God did this. Notice what Joseph doesn't say here. Joseph doesn't say, you send me here and God did the best he could with what you had done. No, Joseph says, God sent me here. It was God who did it. Listen to the language in that memory verse. Genesis 50, 20. It's intentional. God meant it. God intended it. God purposed it. God did it. When Psalm 105, 16 and 17 looks back at the story, the Bible says God is the one who summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread and sent a man, Joseph, ahead to be sold as a slave. God did this. Now, it's not that the brothers weren't responsible for their sin, what they did. And listen to Joseph's words. You sold me here. You sold me in Egypt, but God sent me to Egypt. How does that work? Well, follow this with me because we're seeing something here in the beginning of the Bible that we will see all over the Bible after this. And this needs to be clear in our minds. You follow it in your notes there. People make choices. Human responsibility for sin cannot be denied. All throughout this story, Joseph's brothers are responsible for what they did to Joseph and in other facets of their lives. And they're held responsible. We see this especially in Jacob's blessing and cursing of his sons in Genesis 49. Human responsibility cannot be denied here. Every one of us is responsible before God for our actions, our choices, our decisions, thoughts, desires. We make choices. People make sinful choices. For which people, we are responsible. At the same time, though, that we make choices, God is in control. And his will in the world cannot be stopped. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is working. That's the picture we're seeing here in such a way that Joseph, after being sold into slavery and imprisoned in a dungeon, he says, God sent me here. Like, this is a mystery, how this works, how God is sovereign while we are responsible. Let me give you an illustration. I remember one overseas trip I was making. I was traveling to Indonesia, and 
As soon as I got on the ground, my schedule was packed full for about a week, just uh, preaching and serving in different places, trying to encourage churches where there's little to no access to the gospel. And, uh, and so, I mean, and I was going to meet a couple other guys there who were coming from other places and we would be working together. But I mean, from the very beginning, my schedule, I was doing stuff, scheduled to do stuff. So I go to the airport to fly to Indonesia and my flight is delayed for an hour. Weather's beautiful outside. Flight delayed for an hour, two hours, three hours. Before long, that connection flight is not happening. Some of you have been there before. Frustration is growing. I'm up at the counter talking. Long story short, 24 hours later, I get on a plane. And what that means is I get, I mean, it took me, it took me a long time to get to Indonesia because now it was circuitous routes and I was there a couple of days late, which means I miss, missed out on all these things I've been scheduled to do. Now, was God sovereign over that? Sure he was. Like God was working in all kinds of ways in that. He, he knew these guys needed to preach those sermons instead of me. He knew these guys, were, and, and he was doing things in my life, teaching me all kinds of things about patience. And you know, it's like he's doing all kinds of things. Uh, so absolutely, that whole picture, God was sovereign. And I'm there at the Delta counter talking with them, uh, frustrated, and God is sovereign. No question. At the same time, ladies and gentlemen, Delta was responsible. <laughs> I, I'm not calling up the Delta helpline and then be like, well, you know, God's sovereign, which I would say, praise God that you believe that, and I believe it too, but you are still responsible for this. Now, I, I use that as an example, but maybe come down to a more serious level. Like some of you have experienced or are experiencing right now suffering because of either something you have done or something someone else has done against you. We all experience all kinds of hurt in our lives directly due to sin in us or in others. And as we experience this, we must be careful to keep these two truths in tension. Men and women are responsible before God for sin, sin that causes suffering. We make choices that affect our lives, that affect others' lives, and we are responsible for those choices. At the same time, in a mysterious way, God is still sovereign over all things, which means that things are never out of control. God is ultimately in control. And here's why this is so important. I've mentioned this before, but there are a lot of people today, even some professing Christians who believe that God is doing the best he can when it comes to evil and sin in the world, but some things are just out of his control. And I want you to see what a hopeless, hollow, ultimately unbiblical worldview that is. Imagine Joseph with that worldview, seeing himself as a victim of hopeless chance. His brothers sell him off, he's thrown into prison, and God is with him, but what does that really matter? God couldn't, keep him from being thrown in there. There's no guarantee he'll ever get out. God is apparently powerless against evil and sin, which means Joseph would have no reason for hope in any kind of better future. But no, no, this is not how Joseph thinks because Joseph knows the sovereignty of God. Joseph knows that God is in control even in the worst of circumstances. So after years in slavery, after 13 years in a dungeon, 
He doesn't go off and slander Potiphar's wife who had lied about him. He doesn't bring down the cupbearer for years, had forgotten about him. And when he sees his brothers, he doesn't condemn them for selling him into slavery. Instead, he says, come near to me and listen. God ultimately did all this. God sent me here. God led me here. God has been in control. Brothers and sisters, in a world of sin and suffering, take heart. Things are never ultimately out of control. Which leads right into the third truth that's so huge. So for God to be sovereign means that he's with us. He is ultimately in control. And in a world of sin and suffering, God is always working for our good. He's always working for our good. So we just said God's will can't be stopped. So what is his will? Well, hear his will. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What is the will of God? Here it is straight from the Bible. God's will is to work all things together for good. For those who love and trust him and are called according to his purpose. This means that as you look to God, you can know that God is never overlooking any of the details in your life. And let's be honest, sometimes we wonder if he is. Don't you sometimes wonder, does God see this? Is God aware of what's happening right now? We begin to wonder if God sees or if God cares. If God is overlooking some of the details in our lives. And this is where I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, for all who trust in God, God is ever orchestrating all of the details in your life. Again, not in some way that... People aren't responsible for sin. That's not what we're seeing in this story. Instead, what we're seeing is a God who is working behind the scenes at every second. And think of it. I use this language intentionally here. God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances. You think about Joseph's life. You could take any one of a number of incidents that happened to him, and you could write tragedy over the top of them. But when you put them all together, you see a beautiful picture of what God was doing in it all. Think about Joseph in prison. He tells the cupbearer what his dream means, and he says, please don't forget me. And the cupbearer totally forgets him. Well, praise God he forgot Joseph, so that at just the right time, when Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted, the cupbearer just happens to be standing there at that moment and says, I know a guy who can help you interpret that dream. You don't plan that. God has this thing rigged. God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances and a variety of people. Do we realize today that your life or my life is not the only life God is working in? And who can imagine the world does not revolve around us? So so to go back to the cupbearer situation, the only reason the cupbearer was in prison is because he had apparently done something minor that had upset Pharaoh. So God used a bad mood one day in Pharaoh's life to send a cupbearer to prison so he could have a dream one night, look confused the next morning, see Joseph walk by at that moment. This is not just God working in Joseph's life. This is God working in everybody's life. So realize this. Realize this. When you or I ask... God, what are you doing in my life? The answer may be what God is doing in somebody else's life. When you get that diagnosis and you're sitting with that unbelieving doctor and you're showing a faith in Jesus that supersedes any diagnosis in the world, there's something that's happening in this doctor's heart and life. And countless examples What God is doing in your life may be an integral part of what God is doing in somebody else's life. And vice versa. 
God is orchestrating a variety of circumstances and a variety of people for a variety of goals. God is bringing Joseph to a point of humility and joy and gladness, bringing Joseph's brothers to a point of confession, honesty. God is bringing Jacob to ultimate fulfillment. And for God's people, this is the whole point of Genesis 50-20. All of these goals are ultimately good. That's the point. God is able to take evil and turn it into good. Think about this. This is huge. Even the wicked words and actions of sinful men who wanted nothing but to harm Joseph, God used for good. Even the actions of sinful people who want nothing but to harm you, God uses ultimately for good. God is able to take evil, turn it into good, and God is able to take suffering and turn it into satisfaction. Oh, listen to, listen to chapter 41. You've got to see this. Verse 50. Chapter 41, verse 50. When Joseph has two sons, listen to what he names them. You name your sons after this whole journey. Verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And then verse 52, the name of the second, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Oh, Memorize that verse. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Let me, let me give you a, an example of all this. Uh, it's something I've shared with you before, but it's pretty fresh from my heart right now for reasons you'll see. Uh, my life, my family. So I've, I've shared with you before about how Heather and I struggled for many years through infertility. Our longing to have kids for about about five years, and year after year, month after agonizing, heartbreaking month, wrestling with God over why he wasn't answering our prayers, some days wondering if he's hearing our prayers. But little did we know that God was working not just in our lives during those years, but in others' lives, including a mom in Kazakhstan who, for reasons we don't know, was not able to care for her baby boy and soon after birth, he was in an orphanage and God was using our infertility to open our hearts to adoption that would one day lead us to go into that orphanage in Kazakhstan and meeting this boy who 12 years ago this Thursday became our first son. And how that journey led us years later, even after miraculously having another son the more natural way, in a way that we were surprised and shocked by. He led us, because of that journey he'd started years ago in infertility, he led us to an orphanage in China where a sweet, precious little girl named Mara became our daughter. Amen. Followed by, to our shock and surprise again, another child, the more natural way. <laughs> and now, just to share with you and ask you to be praying for us, as a result of what we've been walking through in the Word, even as a church over the last few months, Heather and I believe God is leading us to adopt again, specifically and hopefully from China, potentially even from near where Mara was born, Lord willing, that could happen sometime in 2020. But all this to say, we look back today and we praise God for five years and however many heartbreaking months of infertility. We praise God that in a world where children are often alone, God is the father to the fatherless and he uses even hard circumstances 
in lives over here to bring hope and joy. And when I think about four, Lord willing, five kids, I think fruitful in the land of affliction. <laughs> and this is just, it's just one story. It's just one story of how God how God is ever orchestrating a variety of circumstances and a variety of people for a variety of goals. Ultimately, always for the good of those who trust in him. And I know it's hard to see in the moment, isn't it? It's really hard to see and even believe in the moment. And even still, some are not convinced. Even still, some ask, how, how do we know that God will take evil and turn it into good? How, how do we know that God takes suffering and turns it into satisfaction? Some of you are in the middle of deep pain and hurt right now and you're wondering, how can I really know that God is gonna make me fruitful in the land of my affliction? And that question leads to the fourth truth here. For God to be sovereign means that in a world of sin and suffering, God will ultimately save us for his glory. You see this story in Genesis and it's not ultimately about Joseph or Judah. This story is about Jesus and his love for you and his promises to you. You say, what do you mean? Well, see the parallels here between the stories of Joseph and Jesus because in both their stories, follow this, God sovereignly uses a dreadful sin to save his people. Here with Joseph, God uses brothers who want to kill him and who settle for selling their brother into slavery. How horrible is that? Yet God uses that horrible sin to bring about salvation for many lives, setting the stage for one day when God will use the horrible sin of men and women who falsely accuse and slander Jesus, the Son of God, sentence him to death, nail him to a cross in the most cruel form of death imaginable. God used their horrible, dreadful, murderous sin ultimately to bring about salvation for many lives, including you and me. Think about this. This is breathtaking. God sovereignly transforms the actions of sinners into the accomplishment of their salvation. Think about this. God used the brother's sin to save the brother's lives from famine. And in the same mysteriously beautiful way, God used the sins of people. Think about this. Sins of people who were nailing Jesus to a cross. Think about it. In committing that sin, they were actually making the way for them to be forgiven of their sin. <laughs> Look at the picture here. Go back to these brothers. They're standing before the brother they had sold into slavery and Joseph weeps and he says to them, come close. Because of your sin against me, I will now provide for you. This makes no sense, but this is the gospel. We stand before Jesus, God in the flesh, who we have all sinned against, and he says to us, come close. Because of sin against me, I will now provide for you. Then on a bigger picture level, think about the stories of Judah and Jesus. So I pointed out this interplay between Joseph and Judah in the story because it's there for a reason. Yes, it's Joseph whom God uses to provide for his people, but you look back, and it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. It was Judah's insistence that brought the brothers back to Joseph a second time. And in the end, it was Judah who led the people of God into the land. And there, Jacob blesses his sons. You gotta see this, Genesis 49. Jacob blesses his sons. And when he gets to Judah, listen to what he says to Judah. Verse eight, Genesis 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. 
Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You follow this. Now it's Judah to whom the father's sons will bow down. It's Judah who will be the lion and it's Judah who will one day have a king, a ruler, the scepter's staff, a king from his line to whom shall be the obedience of all the peoples. The point of this story in Genesis is ultimately to preserve the line of Judah because one day God will take the lion of Judah in Genesis and make him the lamb who was slain for us. This promise in Genesis 49 in the beginning of the Bible is ultimately fulfilled in the end of the Bible. So a little spoiler alert, but this is where the story's headed. Revelation 5, 5 through 10, I'll put it on the screen. Weep no more. Talking about Jesus, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, a picture of Jesus crucified for our sins with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. He went and took the scrolls from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, talking about God the Father. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is the lion of Judah to whom all people and nations will one day bow. Which leads us then which leads us then to the story of you and Jesus. You and I we all are sinners. And we are all surrounded by sinners in this world. We live with them. We work with them. We're led by them. And as a result, you and I, we all hurt and suffer in all kinds of ways that we would not plan. But please hear this good news. In this world of sin and suffering, you are not alone. The God of the universe is with you. And in this world of sin and suffering, things are not out of control. Oh, see every detail in our lives right now. And remember, you are not in control. I'm not in control. Evil, sin are not in control. God is ultimately in control. Even in the midst of the words, things, God is ultimately in control. And God has promised to work all things together, every detail together in a world of sin and suffering for your good. He is able to take evil and turn it into good, able to take sorrow and turn it into satisfaction. If you're having a hard time believing this, I invite you, just look at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God took the most evil act ever committed in the world, the murderous crucifixion of his son. God took the most evil act ever committed in the world, and he turned it into the greatest act ever committed in the world, salvation for your soul. This is the gospel, especially for those of you who have not trusted in Jesus. This is the good news we celebrate every week, every moment in our lives, is that we have sinned against God, are separated from God in our sin, but God has not left us alone in our sin. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus has paid the price for our sin. He is not distant from us in a world of sin and suffering. He came to us and he paid the price for our sin. He suffered on our behalf. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't just die for our sin. He rose from the grave in victory over sin so that you and I could be forgiven and restored to God. Oh, praise God. Because he is sovereign, your sin does not have to be the end of your story. Because God is sovereign, 
Your sin does not have to be the end of your story. God has taken the suffering of his son on a cross for you and made a way for you to have eternal satisfaction. So you can look to him and trust in him. Believe today that the God who is with you and who is in control is working for your good and ultimately for his glory. And the one who saves you from sin promises to one day glorify you with him. Get the picture at the end of the story. Joseph and his brothers all surrounding him, enjoying the land in plenty, not in famine. Know this, no matter how hard it gets in this world of sin and suffering, no matter how dark the days are and how deep the hurt is, and you don't even want to get out of bed some days, there is coming a day when all who trust in Jesus will be completely restored to him in a land where there is no more sin, no more famine, no more suffering, no more hurt, and no more pain. This is a promise from God, and God is able to keep his promises because God is sovereign. Let's pray. Oh God, I don't presume, we don't presume to be able to grasp all that we've just seen in our finite minds and our hurting hearts. We don't understand why in this or that situation what the purpose is. God, we sure are thankful that sin and evil are not in control and that we or others in our sinfulness are not in control, that you ultimately are in control. And so we look to you and we trust in you and we pray for grace to trust in you. God, I pray for faith just all across this room and other campuses amidst all kinds of hurt and pain. God, I pray that they would know that you are with them, that Men and women, every man and woman within the sound of my voice would know you were with them, that you were ultimately sovereign over all and you were working all together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose and that one day, one day, these things, sin, hurt, suffering, pain, will be no more. We praise you, Jesus, for that guarantee. We praise you that this world is not all there is. We praise you for your help in the midst of this world and for the hope we have that these trials are momentary and uh, eternal glory awaits all who trust in you. Jesus, we praise you for making that possible through your death on the cross for us and your resurrection from the grave. So, Help us to trust in your sovereignty amidst our suffering. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you would like to watch today's full sermon or download the free discussion questions, you can do all that and more at our website, radical.net. And also while there, if you aren't already reading through scripture in a systematic way, we invite you to download the Radical Bible Reading Plan and join along as we read from Genesis to Revelation in 43 weeks with memory verses, 
posts each week and a daily Pray the Word devotional podcast that coincides with each day's reading. You can download the plan and join us on this journey through God's Word by visiting Radical.net forward slash Bible reading plan. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at Radical.net.